Gracious Lord, we come here on this, this Monday and we didn't expect the circumstances to be what they are. Um, we pray for this young man who, who, who died last night and his family and the community at Shepton. And we pray that, that they can all find some measure of comfort and peace here at St. Andrew. We try so hard to be there and to provide a place and, and help and counseling. Um, we know that, that it's tragedies like this um, that drive home really should drive home to us all our need for you and for one another. And we're grateful that we come together like this on a Monday in fellowship here at St. Andrew to study your word, to, to come to know people we haven't known before. We do pray um, that your Holy Spirit will move among us with a special um, strength and, and purpose tonight as we continue our journey through this very challenging and sometimes baffling book of Revelation. Help us to remember that it is indeed your word given to us, your people. All this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so I think with, um, let me just check the recording. I think in Revelation, it's just so important to not get lost in the trees, to keep a sense of where you've been, where you are, where you are going. And in part because the book is going to get very repetitious. There's cycles after cycles, you know, there's, there's seals, and then there's trumpets, and then there's bowls, and there's terror after terror after terror that's inflicted on the earth, and it can get a little numbing after a while. And, and I think the way to cope with that is to be able to take your breath and pull out of it a little bit and understand the larger terrain. So here's the terrain, okay? Chapters 4 and 5 is the great throne room scene with the Ancient of Days sitting on his throne, and all the heavens cry because there is no one worthy to open a scroll that God is holding in his hand. And then John, whose revelations, who, who is a receiver of these revelations, um, uh, hears someone whispering in his ear about the Lion of Judah, strong, mighty, being able to open the scroll. And when he turns, he sees a lamb that looked as if it had been slain. And of course, we know what the connection of the Lion of Judah represents the great, mighty line of King David, the strength of Israel, the sword of Israel. And the lamb, of course, is Christ, led to slaughter on a cross. And the lamb steps up to the throne and takes the scroll because the Lamb is worthy. You might remember that I said when we were doing that passage that that, that is the passage that closes Handel's great Messiah. Worthy is the Lamb that was slain. Worthy. And so the Lamb does take the scroll. And when chapter 6 opens, the Lamb begins to open the scroll, one seal after another. Okay. And the first four seals are opened relatively quickly. And when each seal is opened, there is another horseman that comes riding out. There's a horseman that comes riding out bearing war. There's a horseman that comes riding out bearing violence. There's a ho the third horseman comes riding out bearing economic distress. The fourth horseman comes riding out and that horseman is death. And they are very dramatic images that have captured um, the minds and imaginations of artists and poets and others over the centuries. And what I, what I asked you to, to consider was this. All four bring terrors, yes, but they're all terrors that we already have. Do we need to be taught more about war or about violence or about economic distress or even about death? They are with us. They have always been with us. They will be with us till Jesus comes back. Um, and 
And so in a way, the horsemen are a reminder to me, and I think they're meant to be a reminder to you and to the other readers, that these terrors aren't terrors that we can overcome. Now, we're not going to have an army large enough. We're not going to have a police force large enough. We're not going to have central banks wise enough. We're not going to have doctors who can keep us from dying. Steve Jobs, Bill Gates, pick whatever incredibly rich person you want to. We all die. Where can you find refuge? Where can you find security? Where should your trust be put? In your armies, your police, your central banks, or your doctors? In Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the only rock that will not fail. All the rest, they can do, they, they can help. I get that. But in the end, they'll get us. And if you think you've, as I said last week, if you think you've escaped the first three, war, violence, and economic distress, because you're blessed to live when you do and you got a good bank account and all the rest, the fourth horseman is going to get you. I'll promise you right there, right now, the fourth horseman is going to get you unless Jesus comes back first. So um, then we, after those four horsemen come riding out, then we cut scene and we go back to the altar. Um, scene in the throne room and underneath the altar are the souls of Christians, believers who have been slain. And the takeaway in that scene is their question. How long, how long, how long will we have to wait? And as I said last week, I'm not troubled by the fact that there's a sense of vengeance in that paragraph. I think vengeance does lie in the human hearts, and it would be dishonest to pretend that it doesn't. But the question on the souls is how long, how long, how long, which is the question we ask. We can certainly look around the world today, and you're going to run into occasions in your life, I'm pretty sure, when you're just going to want to say, Maranatha, come Lord Jesus, come. This is it. What are you waiting for? What are you waiting for? And that's the question of the souls under the, the um, altar. And the answer is, well, you're going to wait a little longer. You're going to wait a little longer. Then the sixth day seal is opened, and there was a great earthquake. And so that's, in, if you want to catch up, that's in verse 12, and that's where you have these dramatic images which are grounded in the Old Testament prophets. They are images that convey cosmic events. The moon turns to blood red. The stars in the sky fell to earth. The, John is not suggesting that, that one day you will walk out and you will find all these stars coming and plummeting to the earth. Or that, or that the moon will turn blood red. They are ways of conveying that the day will come, and indeed maybe they even live in the midst of that day, when God's judgment will arrive. And it will be big, and it will be mighty, and indeed there will be lots of people who don't know where to hide, which takes us to verse 15. The kings of the earth, the princes, the generals, the rich, the mighty, everyone else, both slave and free, hid in caves and among the rocks of the mountains. And they said, hide us, hide us, protect us from the wrath of the Lamb. And their final question is what? Who can withstand this great day of judgment. Who can withstand the wrath of the Lamb? There are lots of people on this earth. That is the right question. There is a lot that happens on this earth that God should be wrathful about, that Jesus should be angry about. And if you know your Bible very well, you'll see that there's scene after scene after scene after scene where that anger is expressed. 
One of my favorites is when the prophet Jeremiah, about 600 years before Jesus, goes and he stands in the, in the gate leading up to the temple. And he says basically, how dare you? He's speaking for God. How dare you? How dare you ignore the widows and the orphans, ignore the hungry, ignore the oppressed, and come here and say, oh, this is the temple of the Lord, this is the temple of the Lord, this is the temple of the Lord. That's the quote. How dare you, Jeremiah basically says. God is angry with his people. They have not been the people God hoped they would be. And that is, you know, we probably all have our lists, right? The funny thing is, of course, we're never on any of these lists that we make up, right? That is the truth, right? I, I, sort, of, I sort of get that. But, but I just think you have to be blind to, 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 not, to not understand that much that happens deserves God's wrath. And even the wrath of Jesus. There's a lot of things that maybe it's because I've, I've learned too much history in my life, but there are, there are many things that I would not want Jesus to turn a blind eye to. You know, I do want a just God. I do want justice. Tempered with mercy, yes. That's, that's the two sides of the coin, justice and mercy. But, but we, you know, it's... Anyway, so... All the kings, all the riches, all the princes, all the uppity-ups, all the, you know, congressmen, senators, I don't know, whomever, they're all there and they're all saying, who can withstand, who can withstand the wrath of the Lamb? So, thoughts or questions about 4, 5, and for chapters 4, 5, and 6? Because this is one big, long piece we're doing here. Okay, so in John's incredibly artful way, the question is asked, who can withstand this? That's what the kings and the generals and the princes and all the, who can withstand the wrath of the Lamb? Here's what John writes. After this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth. Now, for ancient people, that is not really so much a metaphor. For you, you and I know that we're sitting on a spinning globe that is the third planet from the sun, right? Do they think they're sitting on a spinning globe? They would wonder how they don't spin off that sucker. So, right? So they don't think they're, they're, they think they're sitting on a large expanse, giant expanse of earth, dirt, whatever, soil, rock. And maybe it's round, but yeah, it might have four corners. And so it don't just see it as purely, for, for the ancients, it's meant to encompass the earth. The angels are standing there at the four corners of the earth, right? And they're holding back the four winds of the earth to prevent any wind from blowing on the land or on the sea or on any tree, and that's probably meant to convey that those are winds of judgment that are come blowing in. And they're holding it back. They're holding back the winds of judgment, the angels are. Verse 2, Then I saw another angel coming up from the east, having the seal of the living God. Well, okay, wow, the seal of the living God. A seal is a little, you know, thing you, right, you probably know, it's a, like a stamp, and I think they sell them down at the Hallmark store, right? They At the Hallmark store, you could buy envelopes and stationery and little little candles that you would dip, and then you could have a, I could have a stamp with an E on it, and I'd, right? In, in the ancient world, they were very practical, because the kings or other people would have seals that they would use to seal documents, and if the seal was unbroken, it meant that it hadn't been tampered with. 
and it meant that it came from the king because the king might be the only one. Oftentimes, kings would have the seals that they wore, a signet ring kind of thing that they would use to seal it. And so you'd have to take the king's finger off to get the king's seal because it conveyed that this message is the king's. So this is the seal of the living God that is being carried by an angel coming out of the east. He, this angel, called out in a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm the land and the sea. Those angels are holding back the winds, but they don't have to do that forever. They have the power to let that stuff come. And whoosh, the wind of judgment would come rolling in. But the angel with the seal says, Do not harm the land or the sea or the trees until we put a seal on the foreheads of the servants of our God. Hold it back until we put a seal on the foreheads of the servants of our God. Now, what does that convey? What do you think that means? It marks the believers, God's people, out as God's people. Right? That's, that's what it's all about. Just as the seal of the king of Syria put on a document, marked that document as the king's, so the seal metaphorically right, seals the believers as God's people, God's servants, the foreheads of the servants of our God. So John's going, okay, now pay attention. Then I heard, then I heard the number of those who were sealed, 144,000 from all the tribes of Israel. Boy, has that number been beaten to death. You know, I, I think it's the Jehovah's Witnesses who came up with this idea that, and, and I think, if it's not them, it's another something like that, that there were going to be 144,000 special people to be saved in a special way. And what you wanted to do is you wanted to be counted among that 144,000. If you joined their movement, you would be which in, created a problem once they got to 144,001. <laughs> I'm serious, right, yeah, so it did. So, okay, let's, let's take the 144,000, right? Okay. 144,000 from all the tribes of Israel. Then we get a listing of these tribes. Judah, 12,000. Reuben, 12,000. Gad, 12,000. Asher, 12,000. Naphtali, 12,000. Manasseh, 12,000. Simeon, 12,000. Levi, 12,000. Issachar, 12,000. Zebulun, 12,000. Joseph, 12,000. Benjamin, 12,000. Okay, now that list of 12 tribes varies a little bit from place to place and time to time depending on the purpose. Okay? You notice, where is the tribe of Dan? Oops! The tribe of Dan isn't there. The tribe of Dan took the land, the northernmost land in Israel. The tribe of Dan isn't there. Why isn't the tribe of Dan listed? Hmm. I guess I would say, if I had to hazard a guess, which I don't always like doing, but if I had to hazard, what, what, I have to what do I have to lose by guessing? So what am I talking about? So my guess would be that it, Dan isn't there because Dan is the tribe that embraced the golden calf of Jeroboam. And so they may represent in some way the idolatry of Israel. But notice um, Joseph is there, which is odd. One of his sons, Manasseh, but not the other son, Ephraim. Now, I'm just telling you, all that should help you understand that these lists are crafted for a purpose. How many disciples did Jesus have? Twelve. Do you know the names of those twelve? Do you know that if you went through and, took, and tried to put a name to all those twelves, you would come up with lists that vary from twelve to fifteen with different names in them, depending on which gospel you were looking at. I'm just telling you, that's just how it is. So, is there any reason to get uptight about that? No, there's no reason to get uptight about that. What matters is the 12, the number 12 in this case, because there were 12 tribes of Israel. 
They constituted God's people, the 12 tribes of Israel. I don't care whether you call them Joseph and Manasseh or Ephraim or Levi, Dan, there have to be 12. Same way with the 12 disciples. Even if it's hard to really pin down exactly the names, what matters is that Jesus has capital T, 12 disciples, because he is forming a new Israel around himself. Aha! Right? So, we look at this. Now, are we supposed to think that the only people who are the servants of our God to be sealed in this way actually comes up to 144,000, not 143,999 and not 144,001. No, 144,000. No. So let me tell you what this is. There are two numbers, three numbers that matter here. I'll let you decide if it's two or three. The number 12, then the number 12 again, 12 times 12, and then the number 1,000. So let me clue you into the number 1,000. The number 1,000 for the Hebrews and really for ancient societies in general was the largest round number that they used. They didn't need big numbers like, you know, I don't have a government that's spending, you know, four kajillion trillion dollars a day. Thousands did them just fine. And so thousand became an, uh, a word that not only conveyed, well, not 999, not a thousand and one, as if you were counting. Sometimes it is that, you know, you can see it. In scripture sometimes but a much of the time the number a thousand simply conveys a big quantity it's just a big number about as big a number as you'd care to think about a big quantity yeah so Maggie said she's those are Bibles yeah so so Saul has killed his thousands and David has killed his tens of thousands so yeah it conveys that you know Saul went out and he killed a whole bunch of bad guys as far as the Israelites are concerned but David he went out and killed a whole bunch more right it's a tens of thousands it's just you you're just not meant to sit down with a calculator. That's very modern and Western of what we do with some of these biblical numbers and it kind of mistreats them. As you'll see, if you, if you try to do too much with these, the numbers here, you're gonna miss the, the magic that's about to happen in chapter seven. So, 144,000, 12 tribes times 12 apostles, just like the 24 elders, and how many elders were there gathered around the throne in chapter 4? 24, probably 12 tribes and 12 elders. 12 patriarchs and 12 apostles, whatever you, 12, whatever you want to think about it. 12 tribes, 12 apostles, Old Testament, New Testament, right? And a thousand means a whole bunch of them. <laughs> a whole bunch, large quantity. So now let's go on, because look at verse 4. This is so cool. There's certain things in the Bible I love sharing with people. I just do. This is one of them. Then He says, Then I heard the number of those who were sealed, 144,000 from all the tribes of Israel. Verse 9, After this I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count. Go back to chapter 5. He hears, who can open the scroll? John hears the Lion of Judah and he looks and sees what? Lamb. The Lamb. Here he hears the 144,000 and he looks and sees the great multitude. It's all one vision, right? He sees this vast multitude. 12 times 12 times 1,000 conveys Old Testament, New Testament, tribes, apostles, big quantities, yes. And but then he turns and it is this great multitude that he can't even be counted. It's sort of like the first part of this points toward the second. But like with the lamb, what you really need to pay attention to is not 
144,000. You need to pay attention to the great multitude of verse 9. After this I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count. From where? From every nation, tribe, people, and language. Doesn't matter. When Jesus said, go make disciples, where did he send them to go make disciples? Of, of all nations, right? Everywhere. In Acts, Jesus says, be my witnesses. To where? Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Everywhere. When God had come to Abraham in Genesis 12, 3, and he said, Abraham, I'm going to give you land, I'm going to give you people. And there are going to be families blessed through Abraham. Who are those families? All the families of the earth. Everybody, everybody, everybody. God wants to restore humanity. All of humanity to a right relationship with God. God loves every single person on this planet that has ever been or ever will. And what God desperately wants is for everyone to come to a to be restored to a right relationship with God. So sure, of course, of course, of course it's a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, tribe, people, and language. Of course it is. Of course it is. Standing before the throne and before the Lamb. Just this vastness, this throng, standing before the Lamb, standing before the throne, sealed as God's servants. Yes. Were there 12,000 practicing Christians when this was written? Not anymore, if that. You know, yeah, that's why, that's why, you, you, that's why you have to, to, to not try to find this in a census. Right? or a great multitude standing before the throne unless, unless, Mike, they understood the mission they were on. Unless they understood the mission that God had given them and all the other believers, which was to, to carry this out so that all the families of the earth would be blessed, so that they could make disciples of all nations. I think if you understand the project that God has you part of, you shouldn't be so surprised that you have images of that pro project bearing fruit and reaching Reaching, reaching vast multitudes, right? I mean, that's, that's so, yes. I mean, could, they might say to themselves, well, gosh, you know, this is pretty overblown, isn't it? I mean, we just got a, we got, we got about 25 people here at my house that meet, you know, a couple times a week or whatever. Come on, <laughs> come on. But that, you know, that isn't the sense I get from the early Christians. I get the sense from early Christians that they understand the project they're part of. And they are ready to be part, and they are ready to do part, and some of them are ready to die for it, if that's what it is going to take to be true to Jesus and to carry out. What else could possibly motivate Paul to do what he did? Man, they say that guy walked 10,000 miles. And I'm just so happy that in my little walk this morning, it was nice and cool and comfortable. And I, and I had my little tennis shoes on, and I could go down the street just rocking. Paul is walking 10,000 miles across Turkey and Greece and, and sandals. You know, I don't know. Good, good, good point. There, just to follow this, there really weren't many Christians at this time. This book is written, I don't know, what, 90, 95 A.D. maybe? Rodney Stark, sociologist of history and other things. Um, his estimate is that in 100 AD, there were maybe 7,500 Christians in the empire. And he says if you triangulate other estimates with his, yeah, they kind of bring you to that place. In my Sunday morning class, I pointed out a couple months ago, okay, Rodney Stark says 7,500 Christians in the world at this time when Revelation is written. How many members are there at St. Andrew? More than 7,500. So what are we waiting for? You know? So anyway, yep. So he, 
He hears 144,000, he turns and he sees this great multitude from everywhere, everywhere. They were wearing white robes, okay, that's not a surprise, is it? Purity, joy, cleansed, free of sin, I don't know what you want to put with that, but it's, you know. They were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands. Palm, palm branches for the Christians were a symbol of salvation. They laid palm branches down before Jesus um, when he rode in on Palm Sunday. Yes. So, so we shouldn't be too surprised that, that, that palms are here. They're wearing white robes, holding palm branches in their hands, and they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Go back to the end of chapter 6. It's as if they're saying to those people hiding in the rocks, the rocks are not the place to hide. The rocks and the mountains are not going to save you. Who can save you? God, Jesus, the Lamb. Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. No one else, nowhere else. What the whole book is driving you toward. No one else, nowhere else. All the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures. So now we see that this big throne room scene is somehow been expanded or he's seeing things he didn't see before because the elders are there, there are the angels there, there's, there's the four living creatures there, there's the, but now there's this vast multitude there. Not just some souls waiting under the altar saying how long, now there's a vast multitude gathered there. And they're saying, they fell down on their faces before the throne and worshiped God saying, Amen. Praise and glory and wisdom and thanks and honor and power and strength be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders asked me, These, this great multitude in white robes, who are they? Where did they come from? And I answered, Sir, you know. And he said, These are those who have come out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. These are the martyrs. These are the witnesses. These, the book of Revelation is written to comfort Christians. First and foremost, it's written to comfort Christians who are being persecuted. Actively persecuted. What's on the board behind me is not mine. I did not. If I could not write that neatly, it, it, I don't know. I just couldn't. So this is um, part of Lauren's work for one of her classes in seminary. And one thing that they have, I was glad to hear that they have spent time on is some of the stories of the early Christian martyrs, people who did die for their faith. So the question is, if your if if your mother or your brother or your sister has been martyred by the local governor or by the citizenry of wherever you live, what are you going to hear in these visions? You're going to hear encouragement that your sister, your mother, your brother is among this great multitude who stand before the throne whose robes have been washed and made white in the blood of the Lamb. They have been purified. They have been cleansed. They are God-ready. I never used that word phrase before. They are God-ready. It's what they are. They are God-ready. I think if I were, if it were my sister or mother or brother, I would be comforted by this vision. I would be reminded that yes, we are living through a time of terrible tribulation, but God wins. And my brother is, is okay. He's better than okay. He's standing before the throne of God. Verse 15, Therefore, 
Let me go back. He said, These are they who have come out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve Him day and night in His temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them from His presence. Never again will they hunger. Never again will they thirst. The sun will not beat down on them nor any scorching heat. For the Lamb at the center of the throne will be their shepherd. He will lead them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Those final stanzas in chapter 7, are they're all coming out of the Old Testament. They're all the words of the prophets and the images of the prophets that are saying, yes, yes, this, um, that the, what the prophets had promised, it's so, it's true, and your loved ones, have not been forgotten by God. They are past tears and mourning and trouble and cancer. And so anyway, I, 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 think, I think it's a disservice to Revelation to think that these two words, great tribulation here, which people often make a big deal of, refers to something that hasn't happened yet. And what happens someday when somebody shouts go and the clock starts running again that this great this some great tribulation I think that denies the great tribulation that Christians have often had to suffer in the course of the last 2000 years you take Christians in the mid east today look back on you think a lot of them don't feel like they have been through a great tribulation assuming they're still alive and if they aren't don't you think their loved ones know that they've been through a great tribulation. So this idea that it, this whole book is just waiting to happen someday, it, 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 it takes it away from everybody who's come before and is alive now. And, and I, I just, I don't know. I, I don't think it's, I don't think it's, I don't think it's so. I just don't. I think this, this book has meaning to the people it was written for and has meaning to people in the last 2,000 years. It has meaning for us today and it will have meaning in the future. For us today, it's hard to identify with some of this because we live in America. We live in Plano. We live, you know, safe, secure lives. Nobody's coming down to hunt us, um, you know, for being Jesus people. But make a trip to North Korea, make a trip to parts of China, make a trip to the Mideast. You're going to find people there who would want to come hunt you down. And I guarantee if that happened, you'd identify with this book a whole lot faster. So anyway, thoughts, questions about the big scene of chapter 7. They hear and they look. John hears and he looks and that whole thing. I wish I had the Jeopardy music I could play sometimes. <laughs> All right, friends. Yes, David. Dave's question is, how do we bring together this image of the souls under the altar with the great, the great multitude. The soul, and I think they're complementary, and that they both carry, they're both portraits of truth. The souls under the altar, what's their question? How long, how long, how long must we wait, right? The great multitude carries the I'm going to take this somewhere. So the, the great multitude carries the accomplishment of a promise of salvation because they are standing there and their robes are white and they, right? So in a, in a way, the two, the multitude captures the sense of already 
and the souls captured the sense of the not yet. Right? Which is just so New Testament. That, that, that there is a sense of, of, yes, God's kingdom has come already. Yes, we have been crucified and raised with Christ already. And obviously, since we're still living, right? Not yet. And so a way to understand, I think, Revelation is you have this ever burgeoning, the, the sort of what is not yet for us today is getting larger and larger right until finally you get to the end of the book and the already not yet have all been collapsed into one thing because Jesus has come and the new heavens and the new earth have arrived but here those two senses are both there they have been saved and they are standing in right robes how long O oh Lord will we wait and I think you just have to hold those two complementary images in tension I have to hold a lot of things in Revelation in tension so, other, yes? Yeah, maybe too much of the words, but is there a significance that Jesus was the lamb and then all of a sudden he's the shepherd? The question is, see, I'm getting good at repeating the question, I, I hope. Okay, so, is there significance the fact that Jesus is the lamb and then he's lifted up as the shepherd? Yes, there is, because both images of Jesus are thoroughly grounded in the Gospels, in the Old Testament. Jesus is the lamb who was sacrificed at pa Passover, right? Jesus is the lamb led to slaughter in Isaiah 53, right? Um, but at the same time, Jesus is the good shepherd, John 10. I am the shepherd. That's one of the great seven I am statements is I am the shepherd. So sure, it's, it's this is the thing about the Bible. It's filled with imagery that gets vastly richer if you begin to bring them together and you, you see you don't you know you don't see them as a rational logical thing to work out you appreciate that they are different facets that you look through to try to come to know the Jesus who who is and the lamb is one, and the, and the shepherds is, is one, and there are, you know, in the shepherd imagery, he is the shepherd and he is the gate, right, that the, that the sheep go through in the sheep pen to, to get in. So, and Revelation is so dependent on imagery. One of my favorite reference books on my shelf is the Dictionary of Biblical Imagery. Big old fat thing, you know. But it's really good, and and it's just it just kind of opens your eyes to the depth of and the richness of, of of scripture. So, other thoughts or questions? Yes. See, that's this kind of funny thing, isn't it? You're washed in the blood of the lamb, yet the cloth is white. Because it's metaphorical. Because you're washing yourself in Jesus' sacrifice. It's his sacrifice that has cleansed away your sins. Right? And his sacrifice is, is expressed as the blood of the lamb. Because he's the lamb. It's his blood that was shed on the cross. And so that is how you end up being clean. So you end up with this image of the blood of the lamb resulting in white robes. There you go, but you gotta, you know, there you have it, yes. So you, you have this sense that the dead in Christ are, are alive in this abode of God. Absolutely. Right. The dead are alive in the abode of God, yes, I would buy that. Right, sure. and in the ancient world there, there was an idea at times where the idea of the resurrection, where people when they're dead, well they're dead. They're waiting a time in which they will be brought back, reconstituted into a new body, into a new way, into a new life. But here you kind of have both, which is very comforting for people because they don't want to hear, well, I am Satan while she's dead. Okay. Okay. So Chris is leading me down the road of something I want to point out that this is not, I would not call this a scene of resurrection. That's right. that's coming. Now this 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 is like a signpost to what's coming further down the road, right? And certainly they're standing there and they're being counted and I get all of that.
but resurrection is so much a part of Jesus' return that, that that's kind of where I want to put well, it's it. It's both and, it's not either or. I mean, the thing that strikes me is that it, it's sort of the, the merger of sort of some of the Greek idea that, you know, you have a soul that survives and you're a shade yeah. in Hades, yeah. right, Homer? Right. Sure. And that this is this is a way in which uh, this is kind of understood is that you're in the that the dead in Christ are alive with, well, with God. Yeah, because what what does Jesus says to the um, rebel on the cross next to him today? You'll be with me in paradise. Paul says when the executioner is coming, I'm ready to go be quote with Christ. And he says, Ah, to be away from the body is to be with the Lord. So there was certainly among the Christians. This understanding that when they died, they would be with Christ. Now, this portrait, right, begins to put a lot of colors and other things around that, but the idea that they would be with Christ while awaiting right. resurrection is that that's already Christian stuff, because that's that that's Paul. That's first Corinthians, that's Paul all the way. Yeah. And here we see it in dramatic imagery. Also wondering too, and I don't want to bring up too much stuff about the significance of twelve. Uh, you know, because everything is like twelve. Is this does this have some sort of cos? Do you think this has some sort of cosmic significance in terms of astrological signs that that, that no, no, this, uh, I'm being asked about the number 12. Does it have anything to do with astrological signs? No, 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 no. The Israelites were very, very careful to stay away from that and were warned about all kinds of things like that. Magic, astrology, witches, all that kind of stuff. No, the 12 is because, I mean, there's no real magic to the 12. It could have been like 11. You know, or 13 or 10, but Jacob had how many sons? 12 sons, and there you go. You know, if in the baby-making competition between Leah and Rachel, and including their two maids, if you don't know the story, it's quite the story. Um, <laughs> as these babies are popping out all over the place. <laughs> but if... If it only ended up with 11 male babies, there would be 11 tribes. I mean, that's the way I see it, anyway. So, so no, I, I yeah. The, the, the Israelites were always, they were, pretty, they were pretty grounded, and they had a lot of ideas which didn't really fit with their neighbors very much. So, you know, the Babylonian astronomers would come over and all that kind of thing, but the Jews talked a different language, and that continued. That's what made the Jews just so darn weird in the eyes of all of their neighbors. All of the, all the neighboring cultures and powers through the history of the Israelites and the Jews thought, thought that the, they were just weird and strange. They believed that there was like one God, <laughs> joke, and that this one God had picked them of all the, it was all ridiculous to, to, to the cultures around them. And, and I think there are a lot of pieces that, that, that fed that. And it's really important to, to sort of see that because it, it helps you understand how really how singular the um, Jewish story is. And, you know, what we can learn from it because it, it is the root that the Christian tree is, springs from. Yes. The, the blood of the lamb seemed, in, I see it in Exodus that the blood of the lamb saved them. Yes, the blood of the lamb is spread across the doorway yes, at Passover. And the blood of the lamb of Jesus Christ saves all the world from sin. It, it just seems. Okay, so, so let's, let's connect up a couple of things. Yeah. So, a way to, because I'm, I'm doing Romans now, so this is, this is a Romans moment. Okay, so. Um, we know the story of the Exodus with Moses, right? The whole thing. We know that there are the plagues, and the last plague is the plague, death of the firstborn, and that God sends, tells them to spread blood on their doorway as part of what they would go through in order to have it pass them by. Blood of the lamb. Right, the blood of the lamb. They'd break the lamb's bones and spread the blood out there. Now, 
and that cre- that is this story of Exodus. It is the story of salvation. The great story of salvation for the Jews is the story of the Exodus. On the eve of his crucifixion, Jesus does what? He takes the bread and the cup and he says, this is my body, this is my blood, broken for you. It's not just any evening, it is the Passover meal. So, inescapable what Jesus is doing. He's basically saying that he is, that there's a new exodus now in him. And he's using the imagery of the exodus with Charlton Heston to, <laughs> right, to, to, dry, to, 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 to help them understand that the Israelites had fled Egypt for the wilderness. They had fled slavery for freedom. And now in Christ, there's a new exodus, and they are fleeing sin for freedom, which is a form of slavery. So you can see how the imagery works. And all that stuff is the kind of waters that, you know, John and the other New Testament writers are all swimming in. So, anything else before we go a little bit further? Because I've got to show you a couple of trumpets here because you'll freak out. So we've done, how many seals have we done? Okay, chapter 8. When he opened the seventh, the he being the lamb, when the lamb opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. <laughs> isn't, that, isn't that a riot? Okay. About like about, I know, I got 30 minutes, dude. Okay. <laughs> right? It's, it's just a little time. It's just a little time. Just catch your breath. It's a little peace and you will be grateful for every moment of that peace given what's about to happen and it's but it's not much it's only half an hour <laughs> verse 2 and i saw the seven angels who stand before god and seven trumpets were given to them so now we have seven angels and each one of them has a trumpet Another angel who had a golden censer, this is like, I think this is like a bowl that you have incense burning in, came and stood at the altar and he was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all God's people, which is a phrase we've run into before. If we went back to chapter 4 in the throne room, the bowl with the incense is the prayers of the people going up to God. And there's this whole other little imagery thing that's very Old Testament to where the prayers of the people are a sweet fragrance to God. God likes the smell of that. God likes the smell of a properly offered sacrifice in the Old Testament. Anyway, he was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all God's people on the golden altar in front of the throne. The smoke of the incense together with the prayers of all God's people went up before God from the angel's hand. Okay, prayers of God's people getting up before God. Then the angel took the censer, just like this bowl-like thing or whatever, filled it with fire from the altar and hurled it on the earth. Because remember, we're in the throne room, right? So where's the earth? Right down there. Not that far, actually. Here we are, right down there. And he hurls it on the earth. And there came pills of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. Those are all standard Old Testament theophanies. I'm going to write it in the corner of the board in case after class you're interested. A theophany, okay? A theophany is a manifestation of God's presence. And if you go back to Mount Sinai after they flee Egypt, what's happening at the mountain of God? Thunder, lightning, rumbles, and all that kind of stuff. Okay? So, that's all been thrown down to the earth. Verse 6, Then the seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared to sound them. 
the first angel sounded his trumpet, and there came hail and fire mixed with blood, and as it was hurled down on the earth, a third of the earth was burned up, a third of the trees was burned up, and all the green grass was burned up. So we have, well, I don't know, a terror thrown down upon the earth, and it creates devastation. Is the devastation complete? No, the devastation is not complete. A third of the trees, a third of the earth is burned up, all the green grass was burned up. Okay? The second angel sounded his trumpet, and something like a huge mountain, all ablaze, all on fire, was thrown down into the sea. Like a big meteor crashing into the ocean, right? A third of the sea turned into blood, a third of the living creatures in the sea died, and a third of the ships were destroyed. The third angel sounded his trumpet, and a great star, blazing like a torch, fell from the sky on a third of the rivers and on the springs of water. The name of the star is Wormwood. Wormwood is a bitter herb-like thing that is, I guess I've never had it, but from what I read, it's like disgusting, but it's not really poisonous. But it's, it turns water very bitter. A third of the water, waters turned bitter, and many people died from the waters that had become bitter. The fourth angel sounded his trumpet, and a third of the sun was struck, a third of the moon, a third of the stars, so that a third of them turned dark. A third of the day was without light, and also a third of the night. third, a third, a third, a third, a third, a third, everything. Boom, 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 boom. Terror is being thrown down. Is it a picture of complete devastation? Horror? Yeah. Terrors? Yes. Is it freaky? Yes. Are you going to call me tonight and tell me I kept you awake? <laughs> Maybe. In which case, you can call me at 555 1212. <laughs> All right, four trumpets have blown. As I watched, I heard an eagle that was flying in midair call out in a loud voice, Woe, woe, woe to the inhabitants of the earth because of the trumpet blasts about to be sounded by the other three angels. So these trumpets are succeeding one upon the other images of devastation and terror, of judgment, and I guess, I guess I need to, to help you understand where this is going because after a while you're just feeling like, come on. So where this is going is trying to f push the inhabitants of the earth into repentance. I said last week that I don't believe you can scare somebody into loving you. I doubt, in, I doubt if in your courtships anybody ever did that. I'm trying to win her over. I think I'm going to scare the crap out of her. That should do it. <laughs> that should do it. Of course we don't do that. That's ridiculous. It's not gonna, I mean, you might get her to say nice things to if you scare or whatever, but you're not, you're not gonna really get that freely given love that we all seek. But can you scare somebody straight? I don't know. Maybe you can. The book certainly, this book is certainly written in such a way as to be driving you, the reader, pagan, Christian, with the, driving you with this question, you know. Will you not repent? Will you not repent? And um, basically trying to scare somebody, somebody straight. Now, 
as I said a little bit ago, the book does get very repetitive in this because we've been through the seals, which you know, I find a little bit more varied, but we're gonna get the trump, I'm gonna do the trumpets and there later on, there'll be the bowls being poured out and they're not really linear, okay? You'll see that they're, they're not really linear. They are this, some of you have been to the symphony, right? I've been to the symphony, I like the symphony. But there are certain modern symphonic performances I don't care for too much. When it's just very noisy and cacophonous and I can't make any sense of it, it gets louder and louder and it's just noise. Same thing has happened to me at more than a few rock concerts, but you know, it's just, it's, it's just this ever increasing crescendo of noise and noise and terror and that's what revelation is it's not linear it's just like this ever growing crescendo of horrors and stuff and i think the underlying message and you're going to see the question come up here it takes a little while that's why we're not going to get there tonight so i thought i ought to talk about it here in closing that will you repent don't you understand will you repent will you repent will you repent can't you see once you come to God, where are you going to be safe once you repent? So we will see that emerging um, as we go on through the rest of the trumpets. The bowls don't come to the second section, second portion of the book. But, but these four trumpets that we just did give you a sense of what all of that stuff will be. Yes? Not all. That's all I, yeah, I don't think it's any more complicated than that. You know, it's, it's just meant, yeah, it's awful. Is it destroying everything? No. And that's, that's all I think. I wouldn't see any more in it than that. And I've never seen anybody put, try to put any much more than that. It's not all. This is a third. And of course, it's repeated 25 times. A third of this, a third of that, a third of everything. What? I'm sure you remember the Chernobyl accident in the late 80s in Russia. Um, Chernobyl uh, translated is actually wormwood. Is it really? Chernobyl means wormwood? Yes. That's kind of freaky, isn't it? it is. Whoa! I bet some conspiracy theories were born out of that. That's. And then C.S. Lewis also used wormwood as a right. character. Because because wormwood is also associated with Satan some and and so forth, but but it it's probably the most direct biblical reference is that there's an incident in the during the time of the wilderness when the bitter waters are made sweet, right? So the people can drink and be nourished. And here, what is happening? It's like the undoing of that, yeah. that the that the sweet water has now been made has now been made bitter. That's probably the most direct biblical reference I can think of in this. Yes? Okay, uh, we've got the seven angels in eight, and what they're doing, but are the four angels from seven, are they still just holding down the four corners of the earth? Um, sure. Okay. <laughs> 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 that was kind of a flip answer. I was being asked if what, they get the four angels holding down the corners of the earth, are they still there just kind of hanging on? The, 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 the chapter 8 vision of the angels, they're, what they're holding back is judgment, really. Okay? It's, the, the winds are really that judgment blowing in, is, I think is probably the best way to understand, because they're told, hold it back, hold it back while we get the seal on everybody, and actually what is happening in chapter 8 the judgments are rolling in, right? So in a way you could say the winds aren't being held back anymore. The judgment, the judgment is rolling in. And so you will see angels continue to be used for blowing trumpets, for emptying bowls, for holding back, because the angels are heavenly creatures created by God for a purpose. They're God's warriors, God's messengers. Um, and so we will see a lot more of, of angels in this. But you won't find an angel with wings anywhere in Revelation. Just so, just so you know.
Okay, anything else before I wrap us up tonight? Yes? Uh, for those that have already repented, what's going on with them while all this chaos is going on? Well, if you have repented you have come, and you have come to Christ, then you could find yourself in that great multitude. Okay? Um, and honestly, I, this is my reaction to Revelation. If I was being persecuted, I really might not totally mind images of judgment being wreaked on my persecutor. You know, when I'm just, if I'm just being honest about it, and, and I do think Scripture is... the Scripture can deal with us as we are, right? So, so there's, there's that piece of it as well. Um, but we will see other images of the faithful. In fact, in a few chapters, we'll meet two faithful witnesses who stand in front of everybody. And so we'll, it'll be, I think, pretty powerful. So, anything else? Okay, would you all pray with me? Gracious Lord. We are thankful that we have your seal, that you have brought us to you, that every day we rise and we strive to walk in Jesus' way. We strive to be faithful people, but we know that sometimes we fail. Help us to know when we need to repent, get back on the road in the right way, heading toward you. Help us to see in this book of Revelation your desire, your desire for us to be put right with you. Us and everybody from tribes and nations and races and languages all over the planet. Help us to know that we are part of a universal church that transcends all the divisions that people keep wanting to impose on us. What binds us together is your Son, Jesus Christ, the Lamb. And in Him we find salvation and peace. And we're grateful. All this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.